Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Beyond the Reaction, the Continuing Relevance of Pre-Colonial Traditions. Consider the following remarks. Arsenal won the league title, going undefeated for the entire season. Parliament failed to take a position on this critical issue. The East India Company was guilty of rapacious colonialist practices. Tottenham disappointed its fans yet again. What these statements have in common, apart from their ubiquity in British life, is that they refer to something being done, but not by any one person in particular. The achievements of Arsenal are credited, and the failings of Tottenham Hotspur blamed, on a whole team, and not any one player, manager, or owner. An entity like the East India Company, or a corporation guilty of polluting the environment, may be severely condemned, without any single person or persons having to take the blame. Or take the political example. In the recent struggle to decide how Britain should leave the EU, it was possible for Parliament as a whole to be undecided, even though, or rather precisely because, each individual member of Parliament was very much decided, having a strong view on the matter. Philosophers call this phenomenon group agency and enjoy thinking about the puzzles that can arise when the subject of an action or even a belief is not an individual person but a group working together, or failing to do so. One such puzzle, which the Brexit case illustrates quite well, happens when a group reaches a decision that no one member of the group actually prefers. Imagine a committee deciding between three options. Some members prefer option one and reject three, others prefer three and reject one, but all could just about live with option two. The committee might then take option two as a compromise, even though no member of the committee ranked it highest. Though this is an issue that has only recently received sustained attention from philosophers, perhaps you can already see why it might be relevant to the study of pre-colonial African philosophy. The debate between the practitioners of ethno-philosophy and the adherents of the professional school was about several things, including the question of whether philosophy must involve writing. But perhaps most fundamentally, it was a disagreement about group agency. Could the bearers of philosophical insight, wisdom, or belief be whole communities or cultures, like the Akan, Yoruba, or Bantu? Or must they be individuals, like, say, John Mbiti, or one of the philosophical sages interviewed by Oruka? A natural way out of the impasse would be to observe that this may be, to some extent, a false dichotomy. Groups are, after all, made up of individuals, and in the history of philosophy more generally, we freely refer to the doctrines of groups like Cartesians or Platonists without necessarily implying that these doctrines in question have been held without exception by every Cartesian or Platonist. And in fact, thoughts of this sort are important to how the debate over the nature of African philosophy has moved towards resolution, as critics of ethno-philosophy gradually expressed more sympathetic views of the study of oral tradition. A case in point would be Kwasi Wiredu, a representative of the professional school. His essay, How Not to Compare African Thought with Western Thought, which we discussed at the beginning of episode 24, was republished in a book called African Philosophy and Introduction, published in 1977 and edited by Richard A. Wright, not the famous novelist Richard Wright, who we'll be coming to in a much later episode. As you may recall, Wiridu's essay opposed the treatment of folk mythologies as philosophy. 
Yet other essays in that volume had titles like Time in Yoruba Thought by John Ayoade and Causal Theory in Aquapim Akan Philosophy by Helene Minkus. So here in the late 70s, ethno-philosophers and their critics were cohabiting between the covers of a book while maintaining their fundamental disagreement. Look though at the titles of some essays published by Wiredu after 1980. The Akan Concept of Mind, The Concept of Truth in the Akan Language, Morality and Religion in Akan Thought, African Philosophical Tradition, A Case Study of the Akan. Was Wiredu joining the opposing side, like when the defender Saul Campbell quite reasonably left Spurs to play for Arsenal and was decried as a Judas by unforgiving Tottenham fans? If so, Wiredu was not alone. Remember that the archenemy of ethno-philosophy, indeed the philosopher who gave that approach to African philosophy its name, precisely in order to criticize it, was Pauline Hantunji. Surely he would keep the faith. Well, just take a look at the description of a book he edited in 1997 entitled Endogenous Knowledge Research Trails. It says in part, Uncovering the wealth of traditional African knowledge and techniques has direct implications for the future development of the continent. This book is an exploration and analysis of Africa's historical roots, and the editor is one of Africa's most distinguished philosophers. Rich in detailed and original field research, the volume covers a wide variety of topics, from the probability theory of cowrie shell diviners to hydrology and rainmaking and the links between sorcery and psychosomatic medicine. What is going on here? The answer is more complicated than a mere switching of allegiances. It is true that the polemical critique of ethno-philosophy, so important especially in the 1970s, has since given way to an apparent consensus on the importance of pre-colonial traditions for the study of African philosophy. But this was more because the critique of ethno-philosophy had served its purpose, making it possible to preserve what was of value in the ethno-philosophical project while being more conscious of its methodology. We can perhaps best understand Wiredu's transition by exploring his essay, on defining African philosophy. Near the essay's beginning, we are not surprised to find him criticizing Mbiti's African Religions and Philosophy for treating African philosophy as if it were nothing more than a semi-anthropological paraphrase of African traditional beliefs. Wiredu also accepts Hutonji's criticism of the myth of unanimity, as exemplified in Tempels's Bantu philosophy. Yet, Wiredu then begins to articulate criticisms of Hundonji alongside their agreements. Most notably, he makes clear his opposition to Hundonji's insistence on the importance of writing in defining African philosophy. A philosophical thesis is philosophical whether written or merely spoken, he argues, adding that it would be inconsistent to suggest that the thesis that every event that happens was bound to happen is philosophical when advanced and argued in, for instance, Richard Taylor's Metaphysics, but not philosophical when expressed by my grandfather in an isolated proverb. If you're a fan of the professional school, your brow would wrinkle right about here, as surely as that of a Spurs fan hearing rumors of Saul Campbell's defection. Shouldn't a member of this school be happy to say that a book on metaphysics packed with written arguments does count as philosophy, whereas an isolated proverb passed on orally without argument would not? Well, yes, but Wiredu's second thoughts have already been expressed in his essay's first paragraph. He acknowledges that, even though philosophy is a relative newcomer in Africa as an academic discipline, philosophy as a habit of reflection cannot be new. For, as he says, any group of human beings will have to have some world outlook, 
that is, some general conceptions about the world in which they live and about themselves, both as individuals and as members of society. This suggests a distinction between philosophy in a broad sense, having views that contribute to having a certain world outlook, and philosophy in a narrow sense, according to which it is a technical discipline in which our world outlook is subjected to systematic scrutiny by rigorous ratiocinative methods. Nothing surprising here at first, as members of the professional school often drew just such a distinction, so they could then accuse the ethno-philosophers of ignoring it. The ethno-philosopher, they would argue, pretends to be showing that Africa, like the West, has philosophy, but equivocates in doing so. Ethnography can show only that Africa has philosophy in the broad sense of the term, but it is, of course, the narrow sense of the term, ideas presented in writing and backed up with explicit and detailed argument, that is generally at stake when speaking of philosophy in academic contexts in the West. Thus, when Wiredu criticizes Mbiti and Tempels early in the essay for making African philosophy nothing more than a matter of rendering explicit what is supposedly implicit in traditional African folkways, he seems to be making the standard anti-ethno-philosophical argument. Why then would he go on to admit that a proverb uttered by his grandfather is a philosophical thesis? Isn't he guilty of the same equivocation that was seen at the heart of ethno-philosophy? His defense would be, for starters, that the two senses of philosophy do have something in common. Both involve the human habit of reflection. If we see philosophy in the narrow sense as a second-order enterprise, because it is a reflection on philosophy in the broad sense, then it is, in fact, doubly second-order. For that on which it reflects, namely our world outlook, is itself a reflection on the more particularistic, more episodic judgments of ordinary day-to-day -day living. Later in the essay, Wiridu gives us even more reason to see the utterance of a proverb as philosophical, and here his break with the standard position of the professional school is impossible to miss. Taking aim not at Untunji's definition of African philosophy, but at assumptions underlying Oruka's notion of sage philosophy, Wiridu writes, Oruka seems to think that to speak of traditional communal thought as philosophical is to operate with a debased concept of philosophy. For Oruka, as you may recall, only the critical reflection on communal thought achieved by the individual sage counts as philosophy. Invoking the relation between the broad and narrow usages of the term, though, Wiridu argues that there is an intimate connection between the philosophical thought of the individual sage and communal philosophy in the sense of the communal world outlook of the sage's people for it is that communal world outlook that provides the point of departure for the sage's reflections. Wiridu furthermore encourages us to ask how the communal world outlook came to be in the first place, and this point is crucial. The natural conclusion would be, as he puts it, that the communal thought itself is the pooling together of these elements of the thought of individual philosophers of the community that remain stuck in the common imagination. The group, in other words, can have a philosophy, because it retains views originally proposed by single members of the group. Given the absence of writing, the names of these individual philosophers and also any complex arguments and clarifications they were prepared to offer are most often lost to the communal memory, but this does not change the fact that the ideas remain the products of individual philosophical minds. There is therefore a two-way relationship between the individual sage philosopher and the communal philosophy in Wiredu's view. Not only is it the case that it is this communal thought that provides the sage philosopher with his philosophical nourishment, 
but also it is the thought of the sage philosopher, albeit in the form of highly compressed abstracts, that forms and enriches communal thought. One might compare the way that Arsenal wins when its star players perform well, but the club and the rest of the team give them the context and support in which to display their excellence. There can be no doubt that Wiridu had fruitful conversations about these matters with his colleague at the University of Ghana, Kwame Jeche, for we find Jeche making a number of similar points in his Essay on African Philosophical Thought. Using a different proverb and different Western thinkers, he makes the point that it would be inconsistent to regard as philosophical the statement every event has a cause, found in, say, Aristotle or Leibniz, and refuse to regard as philosophical the Akan proverb everything has its because of. He also points out the connection between the philosophy of a group and the contribution of individual members, writing, a particular thought or idea is, as regards its genesis, the product of an individual mind. Collective thought, then, is a misnomer. There is, strictly speaking, no such thing as collective thought, if this means that ideas result from the intellectual production of a whole collectivity. What has come to be described as collective thought is nothing but the ideas of individual wise people, individual ideas that, due to the lack of doxographic tradition in Africa, became part of the pool of communal thought. Cheche and Wiridu seem to be seeking a middle ground between ethnophilosophy and the professional school. Cheche grants, and Wiridu adheres to, the key claim made by the latter approach, namely that philosophical ideas in the first instance come from individual thinkers, not groups of people. Traditional thought is worthy of study precisely because it involves the pooling of the ideas of individual thinkers. So, while this may look like an abandonment of the professional school and embrace of ethnophilosophy on Wiridu's part, actually, it is more an incorporation and harmonizing of viewpoints from both sides of the previous debate. Returning to Wiridu's undefining African philosophy, we also find him nodding in the direction of his previous criticism of the treatment of traditional thought as comparable to modern Western philosophy. He points out that the British and other European peoples also have unwritten communal philosophies that have been transmitted orally. Yet, when we speak of British philosophy, or whatever other European philosophy, these communal oral traditions are not what we have in mind. But this is simply because in those cases, there are also long traditions of written philosophy, so it is generally assumed that whatever is of value in the communal, unwritten tradition has been incorporated into the writings of individuals. Widadu furthermore suggests that the continued growth of written philosophy in Africa will eventually mean that the phrase African philosophy, too, will refer to texts and not oral traditions. Despite that note of optimism, Widadu forthrightly admits that, at present, we're nowhere near the point of being ready to forget about communal oral traditions in the African context. On the contrary, he tells us that, this is the time when there is the maximum need to study African traditional philosophy. This for numerous reasons, the first of which is the most important for understanding why he has been preoccupied in so many of his writings from the 1980s onward with exploring the traditional ideas of the Akan. The fact of colonialism means that professional African philosophers are trained primarily through foreign sources of philosophical thought, expressed in non-African languages and shaped by cultures from outside of Africa. Wiridu asks, why should the African uncritically assimilate the conceptual schemes embedded in foreign languages and cultures. Not that philosophical truth is impossible to disentangle from cultural contingencies, but the best way to do this is to examine cultural contrasts, 
such as those between indigenous African languages and the European languages, with respect to what Wiridu calls the philosophical prepossessions of these languages. Starting as early as a presentation he gave at a UNESCO conference in Nairobi in 1980, Wiridu began to refer to this comparative mode of doing African philosophy as the project of conceptual decolonization. By the time of his 1996 book, Cultural Universals and Particulars, it had become a major focus of his work. Take, for example, his reflections in that book on the nature of truth. He argues that if you seek to evaluate what philosophers call the correspondence theory of truth by translating it into Akan, the results will be as underwhelming as Tottenham's trophy cabinet. This is because to express the notion of truth, especially as distinguished from the moral notion of truthfulness, you will use the phrase nea ete sa, which might literally be translated as that which is so. But if you want to express the notion of what we call in English a fact, you will likewise use nea ete sa. The correspondence theory of truth claims that what is true is whatever corresponds to what the facts are, but once translated into Akan, this will become an uninformative tautology. The theory would simply state that what is so is what is so. According to Wiridu, this shows that the relationship between truth and fact may be an issue of philosophical interest in English, but it is what he calls a tongue-dependent issue, that is, one that only makes sense in certain languages. To say of a philosophical problem that it is tongue-dependent is not to say that it is of no interest whatsoever, but does mean that it is less fundamental as a philosophical problem than those which are not tongue-dependent, but universal. And there are indeed universal problems concerning the concept of truth. For, according to Wiridu at least, rival theories, like the coherence theory of truth or the pragmatic theory of truth, do not suffer any trivialization on being translated into Akan. For him, this illustrates how the exploration of indigenous African languages and cultures can help shed light on the nature of philosophical problems in ways that are instructive both to Africans and non-Africans alike. So, speaking of nea ete sa, is it true, or perhaps we should say a fact, that Wiridu abandoned the professional school? In an interview conducted by Kai Kresse, whom we just met in the last episode, Wiridu denied that his turn towards conceptual decolonization involved any fundamental change. It was merely a shift of emphasis. Even in the chapter of his Philosophy and an African Culture, in which he wrote that African philosophy is still in the making, Wiridu also acknowledged the existence of traditional philosophies among African peoples. He credited William Abraham's book, The Mind of Africa, with demonstrating that, in theoretical sweep and practical bearing, traditional African philosophies concede nothing to the world views of European philosophies. So, his notorious remark about what was still in the making was just a particularly forceful way of urging African philosophers not to content themselves with recounting the contents of traditional philosophies. Modern African philosophy should engage with traditional philosophies, but by critically evaluating them and synthesizing them with ideas gleaned from foreign sources. In that same interview with Kresse, Wiridu provides an autobiographical explanation for his shift in emphasis. When he was working at the University of Ghana, there were other members of staff, like Jeche, who could teach African philosophy, so his own teaching focused on subjects like logic and epistemology. In this circumstance, he was sensitive to and reacted against the way that some viewed such subjects as alien to the tasks of African philosophy, at least when taught with an emphasis on Western accomplishments in the field. But when he began teaching in the United States, 
where he eventually held a position at the University of South Florida until his retirement in 2007, he had reason to focus on teaching and discussing African philosophy. What seemed to be a change of mind was really more a change of scenery. No such relocation was involved in the case of Huntunji, as he has spent most of his career in Benin, but his thought certainly did evolve, as we can see in his 1997 book translated into English as The Struggle for Meaning, Reflections on Philosophy, Culture, and Democracy in Africa. This book provides us with his entire intellectual itinerary, from his graduate work on Edmund Husserl through the critique of ethno-philosophy to what came after. We learn that his famous critique was partly inspired by his experiences teaching in the early 1970s in the country then still called Zaire, ruled by the infamous dictator Mobutu Sese Seko. Mobutu's official state ideology of authenticity suppressed individuality in a number of ways, all in the name of upholding African tradition. Huntunji reacted against this with his emphasis on the pivotal role of the individual in philosophy. He was accustomed to being quite combative in defending his position, but then in 1983, while under very trying circumstances, he chose a different path. He tells the poignant story of being in Montreal for the 17th World Congress of Philosophy, when he received a phone call from Benin with the terrible news that his father had passed away. Scheduled to give his lecture on the closing day of the conference, Huntunji dedicated a few hours to writing the paper he had not yet written and was able to count on someone else to present it as he flew back home. This was the occasion for what, he reckons, was the most conciliatory text he ever wrote, entitled The Pitfalls of Difference. He acknowledged the work of the Belgian philosopher A.J. Smet on the political context of Tempels's Bantu philosophy and Tempels's efforts to speak out against the wrongs of the Belgian colonial regime in the Congo. He recognized that many of those who attempted to counter his critiques of ethno-philosophy were understandably attempting to defend the necessity for any human project, even and especially if it wants to be innovative, to be rooted in the concrete soil of a tradition. The time had come to re-read ethno-philosophy, to see how it could offer us, as Ndunji put it, not some philosophy buried deep down in our collective unconscious, but the opportunity to re-read our cultures themselves, to study them patiently, methodically, in order to discover on the one hand their fertile contradictions, their great alternatives, the historic choices that have made them into what they are today, and on the other hand, their enduring aspects, their material and spiritual constants, all this unthought that constitutes our common heritage, and with which we must entertain here and now a free and critical relationship. In his introduction to the book he went on to edit, Endogenous Knowledge Research Trails, it's easy to see the continuity between the more polemical and the more conciliatory phases of his career. He remained committed to the goal of African advancement in science and to decrying the problem of intellectual extroversion, complaining that Africa remained scientifically dependent as it is economically dependent. Just as raw materials leave Africa for Europe while African countries end up importing finished products from European countries, Africa serves as a source of data for European science. African institutions, meanwhile, fail to set research agendas motivated by internal African needs and accept the position of being peripheral and subordinate to the West in the world of science. But now, Untunji takes a further step, arguing that a sign of Africa's problematically outward-facing perspective in science is the neglect of serious research on traditional knowledge and techniques, that is, ancestral knowledge of plants, animals, health, and illness, and so on. 
At best, there is an awkward juxtaposition where, for example, trained doctors who fail to treat a disease successfully may advise a patient to go back to the village and consult a traditional healer. But this is a highly unsatisfactory coexistence of traditional methods and methods inherited from the West. Instead, one should pursue, as he put it, the possibility of harmonizing them in a more viable composite. Endogenous knowledge should not be neglected, but subjected to a process of critical examination, evaluation, and active reappropriation, in part through the improvement of accuracy and strictness as a result of contact with exogenous science. In encouraging the study of techniques of divination, rainmaking, traditional healing, and so on, Untunji was therefore not abandoning his previous position on ethnophilosophy. This call for the advancement of science in Africa through attention to tradition reflected his long-standing desire for Africans to stop serving the interests of the West and to focus on discovering and meeting their own needs. By now, it should be abundantly clear why we gave this first series of episodes the title Locating and Debating Pre-Colonial African Philosophy. These podcasts have been about first-order philosophical issues like the nature of time, the soul, God, and so on, but they have also raised second-order or meta-philosophical questions. This is one reason that African philosophy, especially in the pre-colonial traditions, is a subject worth studying for everyone with an interest in philosophy itself. It forces us to reflect on fundamental questions about the nature and form of philosophy, in a way that the traditions of, say, ancient Greece or 17th century France do not. In this episode, we've seen that a rough consensus was reached, at least among leading scholars of this field, in answer to the metaphilosophical question as to the value of oral traditions. Because groups are indeed made up of individuals, we should not ignore philosophical teachings that have no identifiable authors and can be located only in broader communities. But it's a deep and difficult question, so we don't necessarily expect you to accept this consensus for yourself. Our aim has been to put you in a position to make up your own mind. Which isn't to say that we have no views of our own on the matter. As will be revealed next time, when we wrap up this first series of podcasts with a conversation between me and Chike. We'll be looking back over the material we've covered so far and saying what we ourselves found most interesting and convincing. That's next time, as we complete the first season of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 